Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habits of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio, powered by Malka Sports. You can find them online at malkasports.com. A great guest lined up for you this week. One of the most charitable athletes that I've seen in my lifetime, Warwick Dunn, Atlanta Falcons limited partner, former NFL running back with the Tampa Bay Bucks and Atlanta Falcons. You uh, may remember him at Florida State, where he starred as well in the NFL three-time Pro Bowl selection. He finished a 12-year NFL career with almost 11,000 yards rushing and 49 touchdowns. He's the founder of Work Done Charities. He has some terrific fundraising events coming up. He and his organization have been able to provide single families with 189 homes. So he's doing some great work in the community. We'll talk to Warwick Dunn on this edition of Sports Business Radio. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good. And you know, what a what a cool guy. I mean, such a great player in the NFL, but even such a better human. You know, I mean, he's doing such, such great work in the community. I love his charity about the single family uh, homes and just uh, a really smart guy, fascinating guy, lots to talk about. He's doing a lot of good stuff and has done a lot since the NFL. So great interview. All right, let's look at some sports business radio headlines before we get to the interview with Warwick Dunn. Some big headlines in the last week or so. First, Naomi Osaka, who most people know, uh, top-ranked tennis player, highest-paid woman in the world. She makes a reported $55 million a year. This has been such an interesting story. Mental health is such a big conversation now, thanks to the likes of Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and and many, many others. It's been pushed to the forefront, as it should be. But Naomi Osaka, the four-time champion, said that she would not participate in press conferences prior to going to Roland Garros for the French Open. So she cited mental health as her reason for not doing that. So a lot of people kind of clap back at her. Um, There were lots of opinions on that, her media obligations. So then she didn't do the post-match interview after round one, and she gets fined $15,000 from the Roland Garros executives. Then the Grand Slam tournaments, who like never get together, Wimbledon, US Open, Australia Open, French Open, they get together and say, if she doesn't do interviews, she could face outright expulsion from those events if she keeps skipping interviews. So then on Monday, Naomi Osaka says, 
I never wanted to be a distraction, and I accept that my timing was not ideal. My message could have been clear. And then she said, the truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018. I have had a really hard time coping with that. So she withdrew from the French Open, and she's out indefinitely. So Griggs, there's so many different angles to the story. I think the angle that tops all is her well-being and her mental health. And if she's not able to play tennis or feel like she can do these interviews, it's good that she's taking this time off and hopefully getting the help that she needs. I do understand how the event organizers who are trying to sell tickets and promote their event and promote the sport of tennis would want her to do interviews because they want to promote all of that. And then you have her sponsors, Nike, Louis Vuitton, Beats, Levi's, Sweet Green. That's how she gets to that $55 million a year, according to the New York Times. So lots of different elements. But look, it's none of our business. And if she isn't doing well and she's battling depression, then she needs to get the help she needs. That's the only thing that really matters here in my mind. I agree. I think the ultimate is her health and what she needs to do. I agree. I mean, she's got to take what she needs to do to get healthy and get right and get back to the tennis court. But, you know, it's hard, too, because like you said, uh, these major athletes that have so many obligations and so many people relying on them and ticket sales and everything else, it's hard because you see that side of it, too. But I agree. I mean, mental health, uh, it needs to be in the forefront. And thank goodness it's getting there more and more. And these athletes are talking about it more and more. So, um, yeah, I just wish her all the best. Well, and I think this instance is going to open up the conversation about mental health even more, which is a good thing. And you hope that Osaka gets the help that she needs. Look, she's 23 years old. She's got the weight of the world on her. That's the thing is so many people think because you're successful that you don't have any pressure. You know, you've got all that money. You must be living the high life. You must be riding around in your yacht and your private jet and, and it's all good. I've been around a lot of super wealthy people in my life and they have as much pressure, if not more pressure than anyone else, because they have all of these things. And there's people who have lots of demands on them. And, you know, you can't assume that just because someone is successful, that they're not battling something. So the other part of this, too, I really want to tackle this at an upcoming sports PR summit is I think just because we've done something a certain way for years doesn't mean that's the way it needs to be done in the future. So why are we still doing press conferences? Is that the most effective way to talk to athletes after a game or after a match? You know, you see these NBA coaches absolutely hate doing the sideline interviews during the playoffs. You see the press conferences really don't give us that much great information. I just think there's got to be a better way for us to have the conversations with these athletes where they're comfortable and the coaches and they're comfortable and the fans get the insight that they want, but it doesn't necessarily need to be done the way that it's been done for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Change is a good thing in, in a lot of things. And I agree. Like why? Because baseball did this in 1910. We're still doing it in 2021. And, you know, I agree. It's like the press conferences become sort of a joke now. You know, the athletes hide stuff. They don't say anything. They, you know, do the no comment stuff because they don't want to talk about it and they know they don't have to. And eh, they get fined 10 grand. Who cares? So I agree. There's got to be ways to change it. And I think it'd be a great conversation. And you can just tell they don't want to be there. You can tell by their body language. They don't want to be there. And again, I understand these leagues and sports like tennis. They need to promote their sport. The way to do that is by getting that out in the media and by putting things on social media. But there's got to be a different way to do it than the way that we've always done it. So, you know, I hope 
through our little small corner of the world at Sports PR Summit at our event on November 9th in New York this year, that we can have that conversation and bring some of the key stakeholders together and really put our thinking caps on. And and is this the best way to do this going forward? If not, then what are some new ways that we could be doing it? All right, Griggs, our second headline, the Indy 500, 135,000 fans were present uh, when it made its return this past weekend. That's more fans than we've had at any event in the U.S. since the pandemic. Um, you know, so you're talking what March of, of 2020. So it wasn't a full house. 400,000 fans could have been there, but they allowed 135,000. But, you know, you turn on the TV and you see all those fans there. Things look like they're starting to return to normal a little bit. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, it was nice to turn that on and see a sea of people. Still crazy. They get 400 grand in there, but it's, you know, 135. We'll take it. And I, I've been enjoying the NBA playoffs. You can feel the energy in the crowd. I mean, the fans have been getting a little nutty, but uh, hey, the energy is back and that's good. Yeah, I think the fans have been getting beyond nutty. So let's look at that headline. So, so far in the NBA playoffs, we've seen a fan pour popcorn on Russell Westbrook. We've seen fans in New York spit at Trey Young. We've seen Kyrie Irving have a water bottle thrown at him. And then last night in the Wizards Sixers game, a fan just runs down from the steps from the stands and just runs on the court during a play. Like I have worked in in most people who listen to this now, I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers. So I know all about security and, you know, all the things that you need to do when you're running an event. And first of all, the security needs to be better. Like a fan should never be able to get on the court. Um, I think, you know, people have been pent up in their homes and, and I don't know what's going on here, but the penalties need to be really, really strict. Like someone should go to jail for months, if not years, if this kind of thing happens again, um, you should be banned from not only the arena that you had the infraction in, you should be banned from any sporting event period going forward. Like, the deterrents need to be really strong, Griggs, because if they're not, obviously, we've seen this happen like four times in the last week. And I don't know if it's because people were just isolated for the last year to 16 months, but this is nuts and it can't happen. And, you know, what scares me is there's a lot of copycats out there. So people see, oh, like, hey, that guy got on the court in Washington, D.C. Maybe I can do that next time or maybe I can throw a bottle or I can spit on someone or pour like this is ridiculous behavior. It's dangerous behavior and it needs to stop. But the penalties and the deterrence need to be really, really strong here. Oh, agree. I think uh, arrest for, for sure. And like, like you said, banning for the rest of their life. And I think it's, it's huge. And you know, the problem is in this social world, everybody's looking for their TikTok video or their Instagram follow. So they're running on the court, hoping someone's filming it and then they're famous. And it's just, it's a joke. And you know, for so long we've wanted fans back and now we get them back. And now we're starting to see like, Hey, wait, what's going on? We don't like this kind of fan. But it's really weird. It's only happening at NBA games. Like, I haven't seen this in Major League Baseball. I haven't seen it in the NHL. I haven't seen it in the WNBA or the NWSL or MLS. It wasn't at the Indy 500. Why is this only happening in the NBA? Yeah, that's a good point because you're right. It is. I think they're four for four on the uh, incidences. So that is weird. And I don't know if it's just the lack of security or uh, I don't know. That's a good point. Well, someone or the bodies that run sports need to get together. And, you know, I know there's different laws in different states or districts like in D.C., but the penalties need to be severe for the fans who are doing this. And hopefully the word gets out to everyone and anyone even contemplating it says, no, I'm not going to go to jail over being an idiot.
All right, coming up next, Warwick Dunn, Atlanta Falcons limited partner, former star NFL running back with the Tampa Bay Bucks and the Atlanta Falcons. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Sports Business Radio host Brian Berger here. The wait is finally over. Sports Business Radio merchandise has finally arrived. We're working with our friends at the Parish Project to provide you with the opportunity to buy really quality Sports Business Radio merchandise. We've started with long-sleeve t-shirts and short-sleeve t-shirts. They come in five different colors each, a variety of sizes. I love my shirts. And soon... We're going to have hoodies to offer as well, hooded sweatshirts. I know a lot of you are wearing hooded sweatshirts while you're working from home these days, but whether you're working out, just lounging around the house, or doing whatever you're doing, you can rock Sports Business Radio merchandise. I think you're going to love it. Go to parishproject.com. That's P-A-R-I-S-H project.com, parishproject.com. And you can order your sports business radio merchandise today. We appreciate your support. And uh, send us your best picture. Tweet it to us at SB Radio. Or also, you can get us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. We look forward to seeing you rocking that sports business radio merchandise. My guest is Warwick Dunn. He is a limited partner with the Atlanta Falcons, former star NFL running back with the Tampa Bay Bucks and the Atlanta Falcons, three-time Pro Bowl selection, AP NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in 1997, Walter Payton Man of the Year in the NFL in 2004, finished a 12-year career with 10,967 yards, 49 touchdowns. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Warwick Dunn. Work. how are you? Thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. No, I appreciate you going through all my stats, making me think about like, man, I need to go back and, and get a couple more touchdowns, a couple more yards. <laughs> yeah, I've had guys on this show and they've said that. They're like, oh, I need 10 more yards to, you know, Eddie George and uh, Tiki Barber. You know, they just want a few more yards to move up that list. You uh, were a small running back but so effective. And, and I would say, you know, such a great running back when it came to running the ball, but also catching the ball, blocking, you did it all. Where did your skills develop? What, was it at Florida State? Did it develop before then? Talk to us about how you got your start in football. Well, I, I, you know, my, I think my skill set really started early. I started playing at seven years old, being the smallest guy out there, you know, just playing with the kids in the neighborhood and being the last to be picked after a few games, I was first being, you know, I was the first pick because no one could tackle me. And after that, just over the years, you know, I just wanted to run the football. But once I started playing uh, peewee football in Louisiana, one of my coaches, and he's my pops, I call him my pops today, father figure, he moved me to receivers. He said, you need to learn how to catch. We know you can run, but you need to learn how to catch the football. If you want to score a touchdown this year, you're going to learn how to catch. He moved me out to receiver and just really worked on my overall game. So I think over the years, I started to just really understand different aspects of the game. I ended up playing quarterback in high school. Hmm. So I understood what quarterbacks go through, being the leader, running the option and so forth, throwing the football down the field. So I started learning reading defenses. And when I went to Florida State, every school, I tell you, recruited me to play defensive back. And 
that's not what I wanted to play. I wanted to play running back. And Coach Bowden made a deal with me when I went to Florida State to uh, play running back. And he said, it didn't work out. I'll move to defensive back. So the rest, it is what it is. <laughs> I'd I say it worked out pretty well. Yeah, it, it worked out pretty well. But I just think over the years, though, being a smaller back, playing professional football, today that's more common. When I was when I came out, you know, I had some the odds were stacked against me. So, you know, they didn't want to give me the ball on the goal line because I wasn't 240, 250. And I had to really prove myself over the years. So, you know, I, I just look at my stats and those things. It's like I played in the era where they really ran the ball inside and I had to prove that I could run inside. I wasn't that guy who was on the outside who can line up in this, you know, I lined up in the slot every once in a while, but that wasn't what we did offensively today, the game is a lot different. So uh, I'm, I'm only like 37 yards short of 11,000 rushing. So I can go back and get 37 yards. I'm sure I can make a guy miss. <laughs> it's all good though. I have, oh, I'm almost 15,000 yards total offense. I'm over 15,000. So total offense receiving and rushing. So no complaints. I mean, I had a great career. Um, do I think guys are better than me? Not at all. I'm still, I'm competitive. That's how I grew up being competitive. That's great. Uh, what did you learn from Bobby Bowden? Such a legendary coach. What did you learn on and off the field from him? He taught us, you know, more from the leadership perspective that it takes a team and we need to get to know each other, understand each other. Uh, I know before, while we were in camp, we would always go to a Catholic church and a Baptist church because he wanted us to realize we're from two different parts of the world or we're, you know, we're not all the same race, but when we play together on Saturdays throughout the week, we are one. We have to rely on each other and, and believe in each other. And he was one of those individuals that, to, that really just taught that concept, but he also led through Christian values. And, you know, he was one of those individuals that really, you know, led by example. And he's someone that I relied on for a lot of advice throughout my college years, because that's just when I lost my mom. So just so thankful that he was there for me. Who made the biggest impacts on you uh, when you were in the NFL? Coach, teammate in the locker room, who kind of took you under their wing and, and said, hey, Rook, this is, this is how we do it? <laughs> well, I can name so many people that were there for me. You know, uh, I know Coach Dungey was you know, someone who believed in me early on, but he also treated us like men. And we had to to really, you know, uh, be independent in the sense where, you know, our actions spoke, lot, spoke louder than words. And he really challenged us to be better. But I can tell you, when I first went to Tampa, this guy named Harden Nickerson, he was linebacker, played 100 years. And, <laughs> you know, I went to Hardy. I went to Hardy and I was pretty much like, hey, man, you know, what it is to be a pro. I mean, how did you get to play so many years and this or that? And I spent time with him. I went to his home and had lunch and dinner with his family, spent one holiday with him because my family was in Louisiana. And I just learned, I learned a lot about body maintenance. You know, the little things are, are really what separates, you know, the good players from great players. And, and he just taught me so much that, I just really took that information and I was focused on how can I be the best pro that I can be? And he helped uh, push me down that path. So one of the things that I think is most impressive about you and most memorable with you, we just rattled off all your incredible NFL stats and all the things that you've achieved. 
Warwick, I got to tell you, when I think of you, I, I think first of what you've done in the community and what you've done for charity. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, you lost your mom when you were 18 and you have uh, six members of your family. You became the head of the household at age 18. Um, the things that you've done with Homes for the Holidays to honor your mom. And what's the stat here? 189 homeowners, 512 dependents in 24 markets. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what you call a legacy. Think of all of the families that you've impacted with your community work. First, take me back to when you're 18 and you've got to be the head of the household You've got to find a house for your own family. How do you do that? Well, it was a, you know, a a challenge, but I think, you know, being 18 years old, the time my mom lost her life, you know, I I couldn't be a kid anymore. I had to really grow up and mature uh, at an early age. And I I grew up really fast and I knew my mom, her dream was to run her home, never having that opportunity. I went and paid for and bought our first home as a family at 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I knew that her dream and what she wanted, but at the same time, I had no idea about the process, the steps. I mean, I, I wasn't mature enough to really understand the ins and outs of things. So I relied on a lot of individuals to help me through that journey. And I just think they were there for me as a resource. I couldn't make all the decisions because, I mean, obviously I hadn't lived a full enough life to really guide and, and, and move us forward. So I relied on a lot of advisors and I took a lot of information um, that they share with me. Um, and I tried to make decisions based on their suggestions. And, and this is the same thing I did with Coach Bowden. I went to Coach Bowden in college and was just like, hey, coach, this is a situation. What should I do? He always gave me situations what he did with his kids mm-hmm. growing, you know, when, when he was a young father. So same thing at that age just really just trying to find my way and find my path. And, and I had a lot of great resources and people that was there to support me. So now you're helping people, single parent families find those homes. How have you done that? Obviously you've done this to honor your mom, which is such a tremendous honor, but you know, again, you've impacted all of these families who, like you said, were in positions that you were in when you were 18 and you didn't know how to handle the process. Well, I, I just think, you know, over the years, I've learned so much more. And as I've gotten more mature, I started to really, I would say, understand what I was going through as a kid. You know, uh, talking with my mom, you know, starting at 14 years old, understanding the things that she wanted for us, you know, her dream and, and what having stable housing would mean. And I just think over the years, I've just really... I really have grown to understand a lot of the issues that single parent families deal with, you know, creating that stability for kids. And and at first, I can tell you, first starting this program, I was really focused on the parents because, you know, that was my mom. I was, you know, wanting to help single mothers and we went to single fathers. But over the years, I started to realize it's really not about the parents. It's really about setting a foundation for the kids and, you know, I, I do know home ownership is a way to grow uh, wealth in this country. I mean, that's a huge issue with all the inequalities and so forth. But having a stable environment changes a lot of outcomes and, and it helps kids create a better future for themselves. So for me, it's really more about the kids now and, and how we move forward and how we help and support families. We'll talk more about work done charities in a minute. Um, you are a limited partner 
with the Atlanta Falcons. You played with the Atlanta Falcons. I've had Arthur Blank on this show. I know you two are very close from when you played for the Falcons. That's amazing. I mean, what a thrill it is, I'm sure, to be part owner of an NFL franchise. How did that conversation get started with Arthur Blank and how did that all come about? Well, it's it's crazy how it started. I was on a practice field, you know, one day and he would always come out and was like, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, towards this my end of my career, just say, hey, what are you going to do after football? You know, and I, I had no idea. And, you know, he really guided me and wanted me to find answers to, you know, the next my next journey. And he asked me, did I want to coach? I was like, no, I don't want to coach. I don't think I have the patience. I would rather be up there with you. And I just pointed <laughs> to the top. <laughs> and it's like and I think he just understood what I meant by that. I would rather be up there with you. And I just think, you know, when I was released by the Falcons, you know, I talked to him and he said, work, this is the tough part of business. Uh, this, this is the part I, I would, I hate, but when you're done playing the game that you love, I would love to call you a partner. And honestly, I still had no idea what he meant by that. I was mm. like, yes, sir. And, you know, when I retired, we had conversations and um, he was really pushing me to do something like this. And, and I didn't understand the benefits of it in the moment. You know, today, by the grace of God, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, he was persistent and in, in pushing me to do something that would, you know, be an example, you know, betterment for my community, for my family and my community. And I, I'm so thankful for him and his relationship and the friendship that we've developed over the years that a lot of things wouldn't be possible without his guidance. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm honored and blessed, you know, to have a great relationship with Mr. Blank. Tell me about your role as limited partner. Is Arthur Blank leaning on you for insight and perspective that only a player could provide? How are you involved in the organization? Well, I'm just like any other uh, owner. It's, uh, I think it's like seven or eight of us now, okay. um, a lot of partners. But, um, you know, I, when they ask, you know, I share what I know. Um, we, I, I question a lot of times, but I'm not in the big meetings. I, I do interact with players and I do go and, and talk with the guys and, and try to stay engaged as much as possible. But you know, I'm in the war room on draft on draft day and those things, but I don't get a chance to make the picks. I, I'm not out scouting and, and, and so forth. But, you know, if they ask me, I share. Other than that, you know, I'm a partner and I and I try to advise as much as I can when uh, when there's when there's an opportunity. Seems like they got a generational tight end in the in the most recent draft in Kyle Pitts. I, I like that pick. Well, no, I, I, I mean, he's he's uh, he's talented. You know, the only negative about him is that he's a gator. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, being a gator, you know, it's OK. But I, you know, I can look past that. He goes out and, and, and beat Kyle Pitts, great player. And I mean, he's talented. I look forward to uh, actually meeting him and, uh, you know, just just seeing how his career progresses. So it'd be it'd be great to see him definitely blossom. I mean, that's. That's what we need in Atlanta, and I think we need to uh, continue to build on, on what we've been doing so far. All right. You've got some work done, charities, events coming up. June 10th, you and Steve Weish from NFL Network are going to be uh, hosting an event, the Juneteenth Celebration, a night with work done charities. Um, there's going to be an engaging dialogue surrounding diversity, inclusion, 
There's going to be some NFL stars taking part in this. Tell us more about that. Well, it's going to be a conversation. Steve Weiss and I, that uh, night, June 10th, is really just to talk about you know, uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, just really put an emphasis on you know what we've been through as a, in a, in this country over the last year with all the racial issues and inequalities, and really just try to highlight it and, and talk with companies about you know creating more diversity. Uh, equal equity, having more equity in inside the corporations so that we can see minorities, you know, uh, black individuals actually who worked hard, who deserve that rise, you know, do that. But just having more of a diverse uh, inclusion, I think is important for growth. Uh, we want everyone to be treated equal and fair. And I think we need to have a conversation about that. So I do challenge, you know, corporations to be a part of the conversation, hear what we have to say, uh, and, and let's help support each other uh, in that journey. And I think it's important that we talk about this important conversation because it has been a reckoning and it's been a year since the George Floyd death and so forth. I think so much has happened, so much has come to light. I think it's important that you know we don't be afraid of change and opportunity. And this is our opportunity to, to definitely make positive change. How do you find that conversation's going a year later? I've been asking a lot of athletes that. Are we seeing progress? And how do we engage more people in that important conversation? Well, I, I think we've had a lot of conversations. And it was uh, important, you know, when it, in the moment. I just think now, because we're a year removed, you know, I think uh, it's not as a high-intensity topic today. And I think we need to continue to have that as one of the, you know, as conversation starters. And we can't forget, you know, where we are as a country with, you know, just the, all of the history of racial issues and inequalities. It's like, how can we make sure that every American, everyone is treated equal, everyone has a great opportunity for success. And a lot of that stuff starts with housing, you know, that's the quickest way to grow wealth. But when we're talking with corporations, how do we invest in communities to help every everyone in their community, you know, have opportunity to be successful? When you have healthy communities, you have healthy individuals that are now going out and, and being great citizens. And that's what we should want for everyone in this country to have an equal footing opportunity to, to move forward. Hoffman Financial, Accord Care, PNC Bank, uh, RGT Wealth Advisors, Open Sesame, the Owens, these are some of the companies that are involved. You know, I would challenge other companies yeah. to get involved. Go to WDC.org for more information on how you can get involved. All right. This next event, June 25th, this sounds like one that that I would I would really be excited to be uh, a part of. The Wine, Dine, and Cigars with Celebrities event hosted by Sage Steele, uh, Roe Parrish, Mike Hill. I mean, you're going to have Michael Vick there, Malcolm Jenkins. You've got some other great guests that are going to be part of this lineup. Tell us about that event. Well, it's uh, wine, dine, and cigars. Uh, usually we do a golf tournament. Uh, this year we're changing it up and we're having a virtual experience where you can actually participate from your home. So we have a lot of corporate opportunities for corporations to come in and sponsor and be part of the event. And for me, what's most important is that we want to create long-term relationships, not relationships just for the moment. We want to be able to create a relationship with corporations that we can build on and impact their community. But 
I do have a lot of guys that are going to participate. Chris Tucker is going to participate, Gary Sheffield. So we do have individuals that understand our passion to help individuals and help families, but we do need the support of, of different corporations to continue the work that we're doing. And we're trying to get to home 200. I think it's important that the work going on almost 24 years, uh, we have a 92% success rate. The last time we did a, a check on all of our families that are in their home or they sold their home and bought another home. So we're creating stability for our families and the impact. And, and now we focus on, we have financial literacy, your needs instead of things that you want. I grew up on a basis and I just want kids to understand and value that dollar. Uh, but we also incentivize them to start a savings account as well. And we match them up to $500 on a savings account. So if they invest in themselves, we invest in them. We also have a program that's called uh, SCOPE, where we, with the food uh, inequalities, food deserts uh, in this country, is, you know, a deal with food insecurities. We want to be able to provide a platform to educate them on healthy, quick meals to cook. But also, we got to the point now, we want to incentivize families to grow vegetable garden, build their own vegetable box in their backyard and grow their own vegetables. So we're trying to really have a, a, an approach to we want to support the families through their journey of home ownership. And now we also have a scholarship program, too, where we try to help kids who are still trying to move forward, may need a little financial assistance while they're in school, but they're also giving back to their community. So uh, we're, we're trying to do a lot, but you know, we, we do have um, you know, great opportunity to be engaged. With the fine, uh, with the wine, dine, and cigars, you have opportunity to have a trivia room, blackjack room, you know, cigar rolling. You know, we're gonna ship boxes, um, you know, custom boxes to individuals' homes so they can sit at home and participate in this in this uh, live online event. It's great. So again, uh, you've got the Juneteenth celebration on June 10th at 6:30 p.m. Eastern. On June 25th, you've got wine, dine, and cigars with celebrities. Go to WDC.org for more information on that. Warwick, you've done a phenomenal job with Work Done Charities. There's a lot of athletes that want to start charitable foundations. They don't know where to begin. They don't know how to do it. You have done such an amazing job over all of these years of running Warwick Dunn Charities. If there's an athlete out there listening to this and they say, I want to give back to the community, but I don't know how to start a charitable organization, what's your advice? Well, one, um, I would tell an uh, individual, what are you passionate about? So one, you got to figure out what you're passionate about. And two, if someone else is already doing the work that you want to do, Create a partnership. Don't reinvent the wheel. You have so many nonprofits that are competing with one another. I think it's important that we team up, create partnerships, and you can go in and advance uh, that nonprofit. And you could have say so if you bring in a lot of financial responsibility, I mean, financial opportunity to them, you could um, have the responsibility of really help guiding them in the direction that they should go. It's a lot of financial responsibility when you're dealing with the, the government and so forth. You know, I'm not about hiring family members. It's not about that, you know, so they can have a job. No, we have to be fiduciary responsible for donors' dollars. You know, I'm, no one in my family works for an organization. You know, they help support, they volunteer, but, you know, that financial responsibility to your donors, but also to the government, you know, 
you can save yourself all those issues by just partnering with other organizations that are already doing the work that you're passionate about. When you have an opportunity to partner with someone business-wise, whether it's for community good or just a business deal, like what you've done with Arthur Blank, what are the elements that you look for in a business partnership? Well, I, I, one, I try to create a, a relationship. You know, being in the South is a lot different than being up North. In the South, we, we, we're definitely pushing relationships because I think when you understand uh, an individual, their values and what they believe in, and that for me, I just care about people. Money, that stuff comes and goes, but people, we're here. I just care about helping people. And I think if you can hear it in my voice, and hopefully see it in the work that I do, but it's just a part of who I am. I am a, a family man. I, I don't know anything else, right? So because of what I've been through, and I try to build relationships off of individuals that it's not one-sided. We can help each other. And I'm all about partnerships. I'm all about helping us, you know, to all take a foot forward. And should we make money? Yes, you know, but we can be strategic and smart about creating these partnerships where we can move forward and really sending a message to people that this is an opportunity to come together, collaborate, and maybe come up with you know, new ideas. But I just think all oh, of the message is that we can do things if we do it together. It's I grew up on a playing football team. You know, it's no IN team. We all have to rely on trusting each other to be successful. And I just think, uh, you know, the message is, hey, I want to create a, a positive team that's really about change and helping individuals have the same opportunities that we all had. And remember, we're not going to give anybody anything. Everybody has to do their part. We just want to give a hand up and not a hand out. Warwick Dunn, you can find all his tremendous work with Warwick Dunn Charities at WDC.org. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Warwick Dunn. A reminder, two great events coming up with Warwick Dunn Charities. June 10th, you've got the Juneteenth celebration. And then on June 25th, wine, dine, and cigars. Warwick, I tip my hat to you. You make our world a better place. You're doing great work in the community. I have great admiration for you and uh, keep up the great work. No, I appreciate you having me on. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.